from the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 5th. Today, why the COVID death toll might be much higher than it seems, how CEOs could benefit from corporate bailouts, and cannabis as an essential service. About eight weeks ago, when much of the country started quarantining at home, we started seeing some scary models about how many Americans could die from COVID-19. Breaking news tonight, millions of Americans ordered to shelter in place as the coronavirus pandemic... There were some models that assumed no social distancing, for example, or limited social distancing that had like two million. We have 350 million people in the United States and you do the math. And then by the end of March, the White House came out with its own numbers. So, of course, this is a projection, and it's a projection based on using um, very much what's happened in Italy and then looking at all the models. What the White House said in briefings by the Coronavirus Task Force was about 100,000 to 240,000 people would die, they estimated. If we could hold that down, as we're saying, to 100,000, it's a horrible number. We all together have done a very good job. The the modeling that Dr. Berg showed predicts that number that you saw. We don't accept that number, that that's what's going to be. We're going to we do everything we can to get it even significantly below that. As of today, the official death count in the U.S. stands at nearly 70,000 people. But for the last few weeks, Emma Brown has been leading a team of reporters at The Post, trying to understand whether that number captures the pandemic's true death toll. Well, we've been calling people all over the country, from county coroners and funeral directors to nursing home operators fire and police departments and state and local health officials trying to get a sense from folks who are really working on the ground, you know, how the official count matches what they're seeing in their work and in their communities to try to understand how many more people have died than we've actually counted. So there's a concern that the number of people who've died from coronavirus is actually larger than the number that's being reported right now. Right. And this is not unique to this pandemic. So, for example, in the H1N1 flu, there's research that says that only one in seven of the deaths that can actually be attributed to that pandemic were captured by people who were tested in a laboratory and got a positive H1N1 test. What we know about this pandemic is that testing was especially limited, especially in the early weeks. Until pretty recently, the numbers you you saw coming from every news source were being reported by state health departments that were only reporting deaths of people who were tested and got a positive test result. You know, what we've learned from calling people all over the country is that experts who study these things believe that there are people who died and were not counted because they were never tested. So when we talk about these deaths that could potentially have been COVID deaths but weren't counted, how do you go about finding that number? So more recently, we've been working with a team of epidemiologists led by Dan Weinberger at the Yale School of Public Health. Hi, this is Dan Weinberger. Hi, how are you? Good, how are you? 
And what is your area of research? I work on the transmission of respiratory infections, particularly bacteria and viruses, and how we can intervene to prevent their spread. His team has been looking at the data as it comes out of the federal government, an agency called the National Center for Health Statistics, which is part of the CDC. So the National Center for Health Statistics gathers death data from all over the country. The CDC releases a report every week, and they tell you sort of the number of people who died from pneumonia or influenza in each week and the number of people who died from any cause. Dan's team has been using that information. So what we're trying to do is instead of looking at how many people died from coronavirus, we're looking at how many people have died overall. To try to determine how many people of all causes have died so far And how does that number compare to what would normally be expected if we weren't having, you know, a COVID-19 pandemic? The number that Dan and his team are trying to calculate is what's called excess deaths. So we think of excess deaths as sort of the number of deaths above what you'd expect to see during this time of year. So, you know, we can sort of go back and look at historical data and say how many people would typically die during March and how much variability do you see year to year? And we try to adjust for influenza activity. So we're really interested in seeing deaths above what you would see based on how much flu activity we have in a particular area to really hone in on deaths that might be related to coronavirus. What Dan's team found is that if you go back in time, so if you think back to April 4th, at that point, 8,000 people were being reported to have died of COVID. About double that many were excess deaths, the number of people who died over and above what would normally be expected. So that's about double the number of of deaths that we think are basically not being counted at the time they're being reported. You know, the numbers that we're seeing in the press right now for, you know, 60,000 deaths due to coronavirus are very likely an undercount of, of the true number. We know that some of those people did end up being COVID victims because of New York City. So New York City on April 14th began reporting probable deaths. So these are people mm. who were not tested, but they are people who their doctors believed, you know, diagnosed COVID, put it on their death certificates. So on April 4th, you know, if you were watching TV that day in New York City, you were being told 2,500 people had died of COVID. But when you count the probables, the people who had it on their death certificate and were never tested, and when you count everybody else whose tests came in after that, that number doubled. So really about 5,000 people had died as of that date in New York City. And so the belief is that This obviously isn't just true for New York City, that other states would have had a similar undercount of coronavirus deaths during that period. Right. So we don't know if, you know, everything about New York City has been sort of extraordinary. So we don't know that every other place is going to be exactly the same. But we do know that since then, other states have also begun reporting probables in their count. I mean, we know that also from this pretty extraordinary announcement from Santa Clara County, California recently. The medical examiner coroner has identified three individuals who died with COVID-19 in the county before the first COVID-19 death initially known and reported on March 9th, 2020. Until then, the first death that was known in the United States was on February 29th. 
But Santa Clara then went and they did postmortem testing or posthumous testing on people who had died in February in their area and found somebody who had died weeks before that February 29th death. Prior to the end of February, COVID-19 tests were not available for these earlier cases. But because there was continued suspicion by the medical examiner, the medical examiner sent autopsy tissue to the CDC for definitive testing. That suggests, too, that there are people who died without being tested of this disease. Do you have a sense of how our process and success at counting deaths so far compares to other countries and their ability to accurately count the number of people who've died from COVID? Well, I think every country has been challenged to accurately count. You know, there have been reports about the counts in Italy, in Ecuador, in Spain that suggest they too have not captured the full number. Part of that is the problem of insufficient testing and overwhelmed healthcare systems. Part of it too, people who are not infected are also dying at higher rates because they're not able to access the healthcare systems or they're too worried to go to the hospital because of the COVID pandemic. Because Um, they're afraid that they might get sick. Correct. Experts tell us that that excess death number, the number over and above, you know, the number that would be expected to be dying right now, includes uncounted COVID victims, but also people who are dying of all kinds of other things. People are, we know, are avoiding health care, so they might be having infections for other causes that are going untreated, and they might be more likely to die from those, or they might be, you know, having strokes and not wanting to go to the emergency room, so they might be more likely to die from a stroke than they otherwise might be. Um, so there are a number of factors that could be increasing, um, not necessarily just due directly to the virus. What do you think are the stakes of making sure that our official COVID death count is actually accurate? So I think it's really important to get a clear picture of the severity of the epidemic because this influences public perception of what's going on. People need to know whether or not it's worth it to do all this. A second thing is decisions around, you know, when to start lifting some of the restrictions around staying at home. Policymakers and politicians need good data to know when it's safe to do that. You know, when I think back to the moments early on in the outbreak that I think people started taking this seriously, I feel like that original estimate of it could be as many as a million people in America who who die from COVID, I feel like that's the thing that woke people up and said, look, this is serious and you need to essentially derail your life to respond to it and to make sure that you don't get sick or don't get other people sick. And so it feels like In that same vein, having accurate numbers on the number of people who've died so far are really important in shaping how we view what we do going forward and and how people are supposed to understand, like, where we are in this situation and, and the gravity of it. Exactly. And that's, you know, we're in this situation where our perception of how bad the problem is is sort of related to how aggressively we continue to try to fight the problem with social distancing, right? Like if if nobody believes it's a big deal, then we wouldn't be willing to put up with these restrictions on our lives. So the connection between what we understand about the pandemic in real time and sort of how we're responding to the pandemic is important. 
Emma Brown is an investigative reporter for The Post. Dan Weinberger is an epidemiologist at Yale. When the coronavirus started impacting the U.S. After days of intense discussions, the Senate has reached a bipartisan agreement. Congress said, we're going to need a big program. On a historic relief package for this pandemic. To try to make sure that businesses don't go bankrupt en masse as a way of keeping people from losing their jobs. And it will inject trillions of dollars of cash into the economy as fast as possible to help American workers, families, small businesses and industries make it through this disruption. And they did that in a, in a couple ways, and then those bigger ways splinter off into little smaller ways. Jeff Stein is the White House economics correspondent for The Post. He's been reporting on the $2.2 trillion stimulus package that was passed back in March. From a very big perspective, it's worth saying that there was about $500 billion allocated initially for small businesses and roughly $500 billion also allocated for big corporations and states and municipalities. Lately, Jeff has been looking into that $500 billion. The bulk of that money is going through the Federal Reserve, the nation's central banking system. So even though Congress approved this money in late March, it's taken some time for the Federal Reserve to figure out how to get it out the door. And Jeff says that's going to start happening very soon. We're about to see the Federal Reserve open the floodgates for hundreds of billions of dollars in funding that Congress approved for this unprecedented program. So all this money, these billions of dollars that are going to large corporations to try to get them through the pandemic, how is that money being given out and how are they deciding who gets that money? Which corporations are going to benefit from this? So it's really worth noting, and the numbers here get very confusing very fast, but when Congress and the federal government approved this $500 billion. That allowed them and it was allowing the Federal Reserve to then lend out more than $4 trillion or close to $5 trillion. Basically, the way that works is because the Fed is expecting this money to come back, they are basically betting that they can lend that much. And that's viewed as a, as a safe bet. And most of the programs are still just getting off the ground. We haven't seen much of the money leave the door yet. But we're seeing, even though Congress only approved $500 billion, that's being used to allow the federal government to lend out close to $5 trillion. So what's the argument for why these companies should get this money, why they deserve it? Well, members of Congress in both parties, and it's, it's pretty uncontroversial at this point, that most businesses are not prepared for a 90%, 100% immediate decline in, in business and revenue. And that's what's happened across the economy. So the idea of some sort of aid program for corporate America and for businesses overall is not that controversial. What's really divided people on Capitol Hill is the question of how the money should be allocated, on what terms can it be given to large firms, and what conditions should come with accepting this massive government aid at a moment of crisis. So when we're talking about big companies that are receiving this pot of money, what kind of companies are we talking about? Or, or how big do these companies need to be to be able to qualify for this money? 
the vast majority of the companies that will qualify for this pot of aid are publicly traded corporations. Only companies that are really big enough to be on the stock market are very likely to, to qualify. There might be some edge cases, but we're mostly talking about big brand names that you've heard of for this program. There are other programs for smaller businesses, but this is really for the biggest companies in America. And are there any conditions or terms so far or restrictions on who this money is given to and, and how it's given out? Or is it that any major corporation can just go to the Federal Reserve and say, hey, we need money, business isn't as good as it usually is, hand us over billions of dollars? Under the legislation, the stimulus package approved by Congress in March, direct loans from the federal government to large businesses and large corporations have some conditions, not as many as critics say that they should have, but there are some limitations placed on that money going out. Um, For instance, there was a a limitation on stock buybacks. There was a limitation on dividend payments to shareholders. There were limits on executive compensation. So the idea is if you're a CEO at a company that's making, you know, over $2 million a year, you can't take emergency government aid and use that money to increase your salary. Because those were things that people saw after the bailouts in 2008, right? That they gave all these money to these corporations that was intended to help keep them afloat. But instead, it basically resulted in a big payout for a lot of these executives and people got millions of dollars for their own personal bank accounts rather than for the purpose of saving the company. Correct. Um, That's exactly right. The most controversial at the time were AIG, large insurance company that was on the brink of failure. That's the the fear that Congress had is that the money would go out and would be turned around and given to the top 1% CEOs and executives, even you know in some cases while they were laying off or cutting out pay for workers. And this was part of the deal that Congress intended. So then how successful has the government been so far in making sure that there are measures in place to prevent that from happening? So this is a little technical, but I'll try my best to explain it in a a simple way. The CARES Act, the stimulus that Congress passed, included, as I said, $500 billion in aid for corporations, but it was not exactly clear about how that money had to be used. And it's been made clear by the Fed that much of the money will go in direct loans to companies to keep them afloat. And those loans given by the federal government will have the restrictions I mentioned on buybacks and executive compensation. However, a huge chunk of the money, about $50 billion of the $500 billion, which the $50 billion will be used for roughly $500 billion in lending because it can be leveraged to make $500 billion in loans, that $500 billion will be used for what is known as buying the debt of corporations. And now this is not alone, but it is a way of providing emergency taxpayer federal help to large businesses. Large businesses can issue company debt. The expectation is that that will be paid back, but it's a way of them receiving emergency liquidity. They issue these bonds say Coca-Cola issues bonds for their debt, someone will come in and buy those bonds. And then over time, those bonds can be resold. They've said that they're going to buy $500 billion in corporate bonds. And the question is, and the Fed has been very clear, the restrictions that Congress approved for the loans, the direct loans, do not apply for the corporate bond purchases. 
And so what that means, according to some critics, is that it's a massive loophole. These companies are still going to have their debt purchased by the federal government. They're still going to have the emergency help they need from taxpayers to get through this crunch. But they are not agreeing to not lay off workers. They are not agreeing to not pay enormous bonuses to their CEOs and their executives. And that's raised a lot of criticism. The Fed and the Treasury's defenders will say, we are trying to get emergency help to the hands of businesses as soon as possible. If we put too great restrictions on them, that's not going to happen. So that's their defense. And is there anything that the government can still do to prevent that money from being used in ways that it's not intended? Or now that the legislation has passed and it's and the Fed can basically disperse this money however it wants, that that ship has kind of sailed? I talked to Secretary Mnuchin about this um, question about what happens if this money is misused? What happens if the government goes out and buys $2 billion worth of a company's debt, gives them emergency cash, and they use that money to lay off workers and give the money to shareholders and, and CEOs? And his point and his defense is that this program has ensured the confidence of capital markets. It's given investors the belief that there will be more money and liquidity flowing through the system and that that has already proven a tremendous backstop and a tremendous asset to preventing more instability in the stock market. And that in turn has helped people keep their jobs. I think critics and a lot of critics I spoke to would make the point that there's this unevenness in the stability we see in the stock market I mean, it's gone up and down, but the relative tranquility in the stock market and the the absolute carnage, the absolute devastation we're seeing in the labor market where people are being laid off in unprecedented numbers. I think the critics of this will say, you're propping up the stock market with this liquidity program, but that is not necessarily doing enough for the workers who are getting laid off. So when we think back to the end of March, when this stimulus package was first being considered and then passed, you know, I, I think it was clear to people even at that time that sending $1,200 checks to everyone in America, while that was helpful, like $1,200 isn't going to get people that far. And now that this is entering month three of this pandemic, it's clear that there are a lot of people who need a lot more money. And so when we think about the justification for all this money going to corporations rather than to individuals who need it, Part of the argument for that was that, well, this isn't going to be enriching CEOs. This isn't going to be going to make rich people richer. But it seems like that argument doesn't really hold water anymore if for at least some of this money that is being given to these corporations, that actually could be possible. That's a, a great encapsulation of this whole debate, really. And, you know, when I talked to Democrats about this, they said, look, we tried to get this money restricted too. The Trump administration refused, and we said that this was better than nothing, so we agreed to it. But the idea that you know the Fed is going to prop up these big companies with very little strings, and in some cases, no strings attached, the odds of that creating a populist backlash, I, I think, are quite high, and something that policymakers should take into consideration as we hear talks ramp up for the next stimulus package that Congress is likely to pass in the next few weeks. Jeff Stein is a White House economics correspondent for The Post.
And now, one more thing from California, where cannabis dispensaries have been deemed an essential service. As the majority of Americans hunker down in their homes, demand is high for delivery services. And in places where it's legal, marijuana deliveries are soaring. Well, I was reading like a lot of people about how California's marijuana industry had been taking off since uh, coronavirus had hit and people were ordered to shelter in place. That's Reed Albergati, a reporter for The Post in San Francisco. And that seemed to make total sense. I mean, lots of people are locked inside uh, indefinitely. Of course, they're going to want to go out and buy marijuana. Right after the mayor's press conference, we immediately got swarmed. Our customers are waiting outside in lines going down the block. Some businesses are reporting a 50% spike in orders. As a company, I would say um, we've more than doubled our deliveries. But as I started to talk to people and, and look into it a little more, I realized that the story is actually not that at all. I mean, yes, people were out, you know, buying a bunch of marijuana, but that has sort of worn off now. And actually, there are tons of challenges that they're facing. And those challenges have to do with the fact that in the eyes of the state government, they're performing essential work. And in the eyes of the federal government, they're performing illegal work. In a way, it holds a mirror up to how absurd this disparity is between state laws and, and the federal law, which considers it, you know, on par with uh, cocaine and other drugs. We saw the potential to lose everything and then have the state or federal government not have our backs at all. It was very scary and still is. We're, We're afraid every day that they could change the rules, which they could. I talked to Alicia and Dave Wingard. They're a couple in Santa Rosa who own a business called Terra Flora, which sells marijuana, but also grows it. And um, they've been in the business for years. When our county initially put us on lockdown, there was some wording that made it sound like it would be medical-only facilities. Since then, they've updated the um, shelter-in-place ordinance that just indicates that all licensed cannabis facilities are deemed essential so long as we are you know, following the social distancing guidelines. The Wingards, like all these other uh, businesses in California, are prohibited from allowing people into their stores. So they have to do either delivery or drive-through where people wait in their cars and employees go out to serve them. And that just creates a whole bunch of logistics. So they've got to figure out how to give employees the right protective gear. They need really more staff because they're having them, you know, shuttle in and out. So they're really kind of like frontline workers. And meanwhile, some of their employees have been out sick. Um, You know, if you get a cold or something, um, you're not coming into work. Nobody's taking any chances. And one of the added costs for cannabis businesses has to do with the family's first coronavirus response act. So if employees don't want to come into work, they basically have to pay their salary. Um, according to this new federal law. Obviously, we have to help our employees where where we can. There's guidelines that they put out for us to follow. But yeah, most businesses, they can recoup that loss in some way. And from what I understand, cannabis cannot. They're looking at this stimulus package, which is meant to help businesses overcome these added costs. And it's not applicable to marijuana businesses because it's illegal federally. So a lot of the people I talked to pointed out this irony or this double standard. We're here to provide a service and a product to our community. 
and we're going to continue to do that regardless of how difficult it is for us. But it seems like unnecessarily punitive almost. The designation by California and now other states um, as an essential service in, in during this pandemic actually means a lot to people in the industry. They, they see that as further legitimizing this industry, and yet they can't participate in the federal bailout. And I think this pandemic has kind of just brought those issues up to the surface even more. Reed Albergati is a reporter for The Post based in San Francisco. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. If you have not yet heard Saturday's lovely story on the rise of sourdough bread, we encourage you to go back and listen. It is a true delight. One thing about that story, a couple times I mistakenly referred to yeast as bacteria. It is, in fact, a fungus. Thanks to Bruce, who pointed that out. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.